Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM, has prioritized diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan. Their new Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has been charged with the responsibility of spearheading STHM student-facing DEI programming faculty education, and collaboration with industries on school-wide DEI initiatives. As the sports, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sports, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lee Lyons. And I'm Anna Marie Jones. Every alternate week, we conduct a question and answer episode based on the prior week's podcast. And today we're talking about a subject that might not come up a lot when talking about diversity, but we think it's essential to explore. Yeah, this week's Q&A episode is based on last week's episode, Body Diversity, an Exploration of the Danger and Discrimination that Result from Diet Culture. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop now, go back and listen. Darylise, I haven't been able to get last week's episode out of my head, and I've been hypervigilant about media messaging and diet culture, and I'm seeing discrimination and body shaming and body policing everywhere I look. It's pervasive. And I think, Anna-Marie, you're pointing to something that when people start waking up to it, we really start to see the impact of diet culture everywhere. Yeah, we're really all affected by it. And I try to be as careful as possible with my kids, like what I say to them about what they're eating and how much exercise they're getting. And I've made it a rule to never focus on their bodies, although on occasion I've heard my kids talking about other kids' bodies. So you're absolutely right. The world of diet culture and fat shaming, it's something that is so pervasive that they're talking about it even though it's not modeled at home. Right. And, you know, I think it's really subtle and it's insidious. And so even though you're saying that they're not seeing it at home, like I'm sure that it's in the TV shows that they're watching and the ads that pop up on their computer, even when they're going to do homework. I mean, I just think that in the year 2021, we can't escape this stuff. It's coming at us from every angle. Yeah, that's very true. And Darylise, you mentioned that eating disorders can affect anyone. So that left me wondering if there are any mental health, you know, eating disorder programs, whether they're federal or state or nonprofits throughout the country for those who are suffering and might not have insurance or resources to pay for counseling. Yeah, sadly, Anna-Marie, I think you're pointing to a huge, huge problem, which is that eating disorder treatment is expensive and it can be cost prohibitive. I think I mentioned this on the episode, but I've been inpatient, um, hospitalized 
18 times for bulimia and anorexia in my life. And in 2008 was the last time I was in treatment. And I was in treatment pretty much consecutively for nine months. I went to a few different treatment centers during that time. But I basically had to use my entire savings and go into debt in order to pay for it. And I, at the time, I had insurance. And I did, luckily, thank goodness, you know, I had insurance all the times that I was inpatient, hospitalized for treatment. But even with that, copays can be huge and insurance really can dictate the care that people receive. So, you know, so I, I know you asked me a question and I'm going to answer that question, but I think it's just important for people to understand whether someone has resources or not. The cost of residential eating disorder treatment, I looked it up and if someone wanted to go in for a 30-day treatment program, like at the low end for private pay, like a sliding scale, right? It, it's around maybe $12,000 at the low end. Wow. Um, and the average cost for inpatient residential treatment for 30 days is around $30,000, although some treatment wow. facilities... Right? I know. And some facilities might cost double that depending on what they offer. And so for some portion of that can be covered by insurance. Sometimes none of it is covered by insurance. And I think the thing is, is that if a person has a lot of money and they can private pay, then they can focus entirely on just getting better, which you know is incredibly difficult in and of itself. And there's a lot of work and a lot of barriers that we have to face you know, inside ourselves to recover from eating disorder. And so, yeah, if a person has unlimited financial resources, that becomes easier. But then even, you know, I think the assumption is, well, if someone has insurance, like that insurance is going to cover that. But it doesn't. I remember going to treatment and I think I was maybe like one or two pounds above the standard for an anorexic diagnosis, but I was miserable and I was killing myself, but I didn't like meet the criteria for anorexia based on weight. And then at one point in my life, I was binging and purging 12 times a day. And I remember going to a treatment center and the insurance company initially denied admission because they said, you know, like, oh, well, you're not suicidal. So we think you can get better. And there are just so many hoops to jump through, even for people who want to get better, even for people who have insurance. And then, you know, people in treatment, I remember this like vividly. I remember being in treatment with people who were doing really, really well and trying their hardest and facing their demons and and their fears and really doing the work. And then their insurance company could arbitrarily decide that because they were doing well in the program and they were committed to getting better and working hard, um, that they were doing too well and should be discharged, right? And so like all these barriers to care, I think the system is so, so broken. And this is all, I'm speaking here about people who, you know, have insurance and have resources, and then it only gets more complicated. And there are only more barriers, I think, for people who don't have that. And yes, Anna Marie, there are free treatment centers and resources. There are some centers that are open to people who are on public assistance or maybe don't have insurance, but state-operated facilities, they're not always subpar, but often I think because they maybe lack the influx of funding, they don't have the resources. For example, I can only really speak to my own experience, but I remember being in a facility once that had a lot of people who maybe didn't have insurance or were low income or Medicare and Medicaid patients. And we spent all day, I I remember spending all day for like weeks on end in a hallway. That that was the treatment we would come out 
yeah, I know it, we would come out of our rooms in the morning and then the doors to the rooms would be locked. And then we would spend the entire day, maybe, I don't know, anywhere from like a dozen to maybe 25 patients or so um, sitting in a single hallway and then spent most of our time just eating meals and then watching TV. And there were maybe like a limited number of groups that we would go to every day, but therapy was took place in a hallway. So there was like no privacy. And so that was an example of a time when I was at a facility where did cater to people who maybe didn't have insurance or lack financial resources. And and the care just wasn't nearly as good. And again, I'm only speaking to my experience. There might be some facilities out there that do a really good job with this that accept low-income clients or uh, low-income patients or people who maybe don't have insurance. But that was my experience was is that when I was at that facility, I really didn't get anything except for refeeding and then <laughs> spending my day in a hallway. It sounds inhumane. Yeah, I mean, like looking back, it really, it really was. And I think eating disorders are really terrible because they rip away a person's sense of self and a person's sense of self worth. And so I think part of like really valid recovery is restoring a sense of integrity and restoring a sense of self love. And so that really can't happen in an environment, right, where you're locked in a hallway most of the day and having to, I mean, like, this may be an overshare, but I had to pee in a commode because I wasn't trusted to go into the bathroom, right? And like people had to watch me go to the bathroom. So like it's a dehumanizing experience, or at least that was my experience. Uh, versus when I was at Timberline Knowles in Chicago or the Renfrew Center in Philadelphia, or there was another place I went to in Florida that was really holistic, but since closed down. And all those places, like there was so much more emphasis on the therapeutic elements and so many more resources that were available to me, but but those were expensive and my insurance didn't cover all of it. And I had to go into a lot of debt in order to go to places that really would support me in my journey. And even then, I often had to be discharged too early because it did get cost prohibitive. But also in answer to your question, like there are some faith-based programs that are free, but people have to apply for funding and it can take forever. And, you know, because because there are just so many people suffering without resources. Often, you know, these institutions are just like flooded with requests that they can't really handle or accommodate. And it's it's a really dire situation that people don't know about. And as we reported in the podcast, anorexia is the most deadly of all mental health disorders with uh, bulimia and binge eating disorder and other eating disorders not far behind. And so it's life or death if people sometimes have to wait months and months to get into a treatment center or they don't have the funds to get help or care, it can really and does kill people to not be able to have the resources that I think we're all entitled to. And it's really, really sad that... um, And then something else that we talked about in the podcast is that there are a lot of facilities that won't admit men that are just not equipped for that. And so there are barriers of gender, of finance, of various demographics, of body type. And if those barriers weren't in existence, a lot more people would have access to the help that they really need. Yeah, wow. Well, first of all, Darylise, thank you for sharing your story. And I'm so sorry that on top of battling an eating disorder, you also had to battle with insurance and the high cost of treatment, which I can only imagine must conflate the burden and stress of your illness. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really hard. And it's hard too to like, 
I think part of the disorder is like not believing that you're worth fighting for. Yeah. And so I think there are a lot of people who, when they bump up against these real barriers to getting treatment and getting care, I think the thought in the insurance company's mind or the thought at various facilities is like, well, if you really need it, you'll fight for it. But a lot of people with eating disorders, like the fight has been taken out of us a long time ago. And if someone is reaching out for help, they're in desperate need of help by that point. And I think the help should be easy and attainable and available so that people really can get better. Because I think a lot of people who are most at risk might feel the least like their lives are worth fighting for. Yeah. And I'm also glad you included the voices of Brian Pollack and Aaron Flores in this episode, because, you know, as you mentioned, men and eating disorders isn't something that's often talked about. And I really appreciated your conversation with Brian about how body dysmorphia affects men and women. So can you highlight the different ways that body dysmorphia may affect men differently than women? Absolutely. So I think first, it's important to give a disclaimer and to understand that there are no absolutes when it comes to this stuff and no absolutes when it comes to gender. And in previous episodes, we talked about how gender is constructed. And I think when we look at eating disorders and body dysmorphia, it's a tragic example of that, right? So the cultural messaging around bodies and weight and shape and size that are advanced by the media and within families and, and within our messages to ourselves tend to be different along gender lines, right? So like we see a lot this emphasis on masculinity and muscles. And Brian spoke about that and how that can become a preoccupation for many men just as an emphasis on thinness and an emphasis on youth, right? Can afflict women. But there's a spectrum to all of these things. And so I think different people are impacted differently. There are people who maybe don't align with one specific gender or another who are impacted by these things. But I think in my conversation with Brian, what came out is that you'll hear a lot of women with eating disorders. Um, and I heard this a lot and I felt this a lot, but this idea that, oh, I feel fat, right? Women often will have like a, a misperception of the size and shape of their body in that way, whereas men might say something like, oh, I feel weak, right? Like in wanting to have muscles. But again, you know, these things can't really be reduced into easy or absolute explanations. Something else that I wish we'd been able to have more time to delve more deeply into is this issue of how body dysmorphia might impact members of the queer community who develop eating disorders or folks who are gender non-binary or, or trans. And that's a huge issue. And so I think ultimately what I just want to stress is that our perceptions of our body are shaped by a lot of different things, but culture and the media and the false messaging that we're given is one powerful ingredient in the shaping of how we think we're supposed to look or the actions that we think that we're supposed to take. And it's really leading to just like this rampant, I think, body shame that a lot of people can feel regardless of what their gender happens to be. Wow, so true. And, you know, Darylise, I was really just blown away by all the new language and vocabulary that there was in this episode. And I was wondering if you can give a quick recap of some of the terms that might be new to some of our listeners as well. I don't remember uh, the terms that, that we talked about. Uh, were I the wrote them down. So I'll okay, get them one by one. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, there's like body liberation, body positivity, body neutrality. So why don't we just start with those? 
Yeah, I think those are great things to talk about and to think about. And definitions might differ from person to person. So I can really only give the way that I define and I understand them. So body liberation is the investment in and the pursuit of abolishing hierarchies and oppression of bodies. So the way that I understand body liberation is that it goes so far beyond just body size, right? Like it includes gender and race and disability and age and orientation and just any category of identity because many, many people are subject to oppression. And so body liberation really addresses that. And some people might refer to it as body justice. Some people think body justice is like something else, that liberation is different than fairness. But my understanding is that body liberation, body justice are concerned with equity and are concerned with an end to oppression for all bodies. And there's an understanding among those who are advocates of body liberation that it goes far beyond just just feeling good about what you look like. It's really about things like fairness and freedom and social justice and safety, right? So it's personal, but it also has far-reaching implications. And it's so much bigger than just my relationship with my body. It's a social justice issue versus body neutrality and body positivity, which I think are less of social movements. I mean, we see them on like Instagram. We'll see a lot of talk about that. But it's less through that activism lens. And yeah, these things can be extrapolated outwards as tools for helping others. I think, you know, body neutrality and body positivity have become a rallying cry for many people that people have sort of like centered around and found a sense of community based on. But ultimately, I think that they're more limited, whether it be body neutrality or body positivity. I think those are more limited lenses than body liberation. Unfortunately, body positivity, and this came up a number of times in the episode, but it was originally intended as a way to shift societal standards of beauty to expand and include more diverse bodies and and just include like a wide range of representation and enable people of all bodies to feel good about their appearances and kind of break the narrow standards of beauty, right? And narrow standards of what is a quote unquote acceptable or like ideal body. And so body positivity really did originate as more of a social justice movement. But I think it's been so co-opted by diet culture that it's a lot less diverse. And sometimes the messages um, that we'll see on Instagram or we'll see in popular media are kind of like diety messages that are... Would you say it's more of a glamorized term now? Yeah, I think so. I think it's more been like co-opted where people will say things like, you know, even though I'm X pounds over what I quote unquote should be or like I want to be, I feel good about my body. And, you know, it's still a lot of people operating from a place of thin privilege that are espousing these body positive messages. And what do you mean by thin privilege? Yeah. So this is something that's not talked about a whole lot. And I think part of the reason it's not talked about a lot is that thin privilege is really when you're in a certain size body, you walk through the world with access to certain things and being treated a certain way that I think sometimes people don't necessarily want to own or acknowledge. For example, Anna Marie, you and I both have thin privilege, right? It it becomes messy because I think for me with an eating disorder history and, and a lot of current body shame and body hatred that can come up or, or not depending on the day, right? Like 
I think it took me a while to really own and acknowledge that regardless of how I feel about my body, the reality is, is that I do have privilege in the way that I'm treated by others and the way that other people perceive me. And so I remember reading somewhere that you can have thin privilege and still hate your body. And it really, for me, brought home the reality that internal struggles aren't always clear in the external world. And so there's a really great article, and we can include a link to this in the show notes, but it's a 2012 article by Shannon Ridgway, and it gives 22 examples of thin privilege. So like all the things that people who are below a certain size might not realize. Like, for example, and this came up in one of the interviews I did with Emily Zargan, but like I wasn't aware that certain size clothes are more expensive than the smaller sizes. They're made with the exact same material, but they're smaller. Um, A lot of certain size clothes are not kept in stores. So people have to purchase them online, right? Making people pay more money for seats on airplanes. And you and I might operate in the world completely oblivious to things like that. Access to healthcare, to fair and respectful healthcare, right? Like people who are a certain size body go into the doctor's office and maybe they have a sniffle and the focus becomes their body weight, shape, and size, right? With like no regard to what's actually going on. And and there's so many, I mean, the article gives 22 examples of thin privilege. And I would encourage anyone listening to go and read that article because I think it is important. And I think it can be something that is a privilege that we don't often acknowledge in our society. And I think Emily brought that up too, is like they're the discrimination that larger bodied individuals face. There's often like the assumption that people are somehow to blame for their body weight, shape and size and, and like a lack of compassion and empathy and human dignity that our society kind of espouses against people in certain body shapes and sizes. And so I know I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but I want to bring it back to the idea of body neutrality. And I think for me personally, body neutrality is something that I try to aspire to just in my relationship with myself, because whether I hate my body or love my body, you know, the way that it looks like I think um, is kind of not really the point. Like I think the more I focus on objectifying my body, the more tortured I become. And so I found that I I try not to think about my body as much in terms of how it looks and really focus on sustainable and kind behaviors that I can take towards myself and trying to be neutral about my body and then trying to focus on liberation of all bodies. But I think Aaron, in the interview with Aaron Flores, he brought up a really important point that body neutrality, I think, maybe even though some of us can aspire to it on a personal level, I don't think it's far reaching enough because for people with maybe trans bodies or chronic pain conditions or like body neutrality can really be disempowering, right? And not true to their experience. And so I think body liberation is actually about not being neutral about what's happening to oppressed bodies, whether it be our own or someone else's. And it's also kind of irrelevant whether we feel positive about our bodies or what they look like, but it's about freedom from oppression. It's about safety and it's about respect. So I think we should all be striving for body liberation for our own bodies and others. And then if we feel good about our bodies, great. And if we feel neutral about our bodies, fine. But ultimately, the real goal is freedom from oppression. 
Yeah. And what are some of the healthy behaviors that you focus on rather than focusing on weight? And what can we all do to adopt some of these behaviors? Gosh, yeah. So I think this is where it can be really different for everyone. And I think sometimes those healthy behaviors might include food and movement, and sometimes they might not. For example, there are people who love running. It makes them happy. It lights them up inside. It reminds them of playing on the playground. Like maybe they ran track in high school, right? And so they love running. And for them, running would be an act of like freedom and self-love and self-expression. But for someone else, like with me, with my history of of over-exercise, like running for me would be a form of self-punishment and a form of self-abuse, right? It's like, I don't think we can sit here and make any like concrete prescriptive recommendations about like, well, if you do this, it means you love your body. And if you do this, it means you don't. And I think it's the same with every other type of movement and and ways of eating as well, right? Like one person might want to eat a certain way because it helps them feel energized and focused, or maybe they have certain, I don't know, religious beliefs or certain dietary restrictions that are based on like a, a medical condition and they would actually feel bad eating certain things physically bad, right? Um, and so for those people, then subscribing to a certain way of eating is a way to feel really healthy and free in their body. And for someone else to do that exact same thing, it might be a sign of disordered eating. So I think health is really holistic and it's comprehensive and it involves everything. It involves so much more than just the food that we put in our bodies and how we move. It involves who we choose to spend time with, right? Like we've all had, or maybe we haven't all had, but I've had certainly like unhealthy relationships that have really negatively impacted my health and my stress levels. So I think just the first step to health is recognizing that the goal is to live a full, nourished, nourishing, balanced life and and to be free of oppression and feeling safe as yourself. And so I think like if people really begin to assess where that is true in their life, like where they feel liberated and free and whole and then where they don't um, and then work towards doing more and more of the self-loving, self-respecting actions and less and less of the ones that really get in the way of them being free and neutral and, and liberated. I think that's that's important you know, and that might mean eating a salad to keep yourself regular, or it might mean eating ice cream to not feel deprived. But it could also be breaking up with an abusive partner or taking a dance class or going to the dentist. I think these things are really, really broad and very individual. Well, this is all very encouraging. So thank you. And I think we all have room to be kinder to ourselves in certain areas. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, self-talk is something that I think it's important to think about as well, right? Because that's an invisible marker. Like you can't see that and that doesn't really show up necessarily in behaviors, but it does lead to negative health outcomes, right? So like I think we can think about our top level surface behaviors, but even more deep than that and maybe even more important is like the messages that we feed ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, the things that really shape the quality of our experiences on this earth and then also shape our behaviors. Because if I hate myself, I'm probably not going to be very kind or loving to myself. Oh my God, that's a huge takeaway for me. And I'm so glad that you shared that. And I'm curious about our listener takeaways and questions as well. So if you're listening to this and have a reflection or a question, please call us at 
888-8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send us a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. You know, Anna Marie, something I want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. We've talked about this in the body diversity episode and a bit in this Q&A, but you know, health is not a look and it's not a size and it's not a shape. It's about loving and respecting ourselves and our bodies. And I think a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is giving our bodies everything that they need, which is why for me, supplements can be so essential. And I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. Their products are amazing and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20% off on everything in their store. In fact, they put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my three favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Or you can just peruse their website and their many offerings and buy any of their products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive a 20% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Yes, Darylise, I'm loving their supplements and I've been taking the joint support and Supreme Greens and knock on wood, I've been feeling very healthy and my joints aren't constantly sore and achy. So I can really feel a difference. Darylise, we need to move on though to listener questions. Before we move on to questions about diversity, can we share an anonymous message sent in via our website and speak a little bit about this topic that the listener brought up? Yes, I'd love that. I think you're referencing one of the two emails that we got this week about the LGBTQIA plus episode, right? Yes, exactly. So Darylise, I know you've written back to the listener and I'd like to share the message, which we do have permission to share as long as we keep it anonymous. I'll read the message now to the listeners. So, hi, thank you for the Compassionate Educational Podcast. I'm generally curious about other people, but also want to be as helpful, harmless as possible in this world. The following needs to be anonymous, please. I can easily pass a cis, het, aloe white woman, although more and more, the only part of that I'm sure of is the white. I'm not trans, but I don't know that I am comfortable in a clear cis box. I do now understand, however, that I'm asexual. Still contemplating where I am on the romantic scale. I'm in my 40s and happily married and just now starting to figure out why I've always felt so odd. Honestly, I processed a lot through listening to the Query podcast, and now I'm finding that I'm not totally alone via the AVEN forums, and that's A-V-E-N. I don't know if anyone else ever needs to know, but I'm glad I do. Maybe someday I'll tell a therapist if I feel confident that they won't try to claim that I have a disorder. Anyway, the A spectrum is widely unknown, and if you're willing to consider highlighting it in your podcast someday, I think lots of people would find it helpful. I wish I'd known as an adolescent, but I've really had it easier than many. For me, the ridiculous abstinence-only sex ed wasn't as damaging as it was for allosexuals but I never really understood why people made such a big deal about it. Since I didn't know that asexuality was a thing, I assumed it wasn't any harder for my peers than myself. 
I was an oddball anyway, but now I have more compassion for the quote-unquote normal kids. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Anna Marie, for reading that. And thank you to our listener for writing in with your experiences. And I'm so glad that you did. And also thank you for the permission to share this anonymously, because I think your words will help others who are listening, whether they themselves are recognizing their experience in your story or whether someone that they love and care about might be able to relate. So there was a mention of the word aloe, and I just want to let anyone not familiar with that term know that the prefix aloe means other. And allosexual is a word that simply means being sexually attracted to other people. So asexuality is a very broad category, and I don't think I can fully and completely explain it in a way that covers, you know, all the applications. But in its simplest sense, the term asexual means not being sexually attracted to others. And again, you know, I really hate to oversimplify because there is such a spectrum to this, but there's a Healthline article that we'll include in the show notes written by Sean Ferguson about asexuality. And I think one of the important points that the article makes is that asexuality is not the same thing as abstinence or celibacy. It's its own legitimate orientation similar to any other orientation. And so the listener wrote in and mentioned therapy and therapists. And I think something that's really sad is when people whose sexual orientation is asexual are made to feel like there's something wrong with that because there isn't. Asexuality is its own legitimate orientation similar to any other orientation insofar as if a person is asexual, they deserve to be affirmed for that identity. And I just think it's really tragic that there are those who try to pathologize asexuality when it seems to me to be common sense that when someone is living authentically as themselves, their quality of life improves and they're happier and they're more actualized. And I think trying to force people to be an orientation other than their own, whatever the orientation is and whatever the pressure around that orientation is, it causes causes a lot of real negative ramifications in people's lives. And so I'm so, so grateful that the listener wrote in about this. And my hope is, is that maybe someone listening will recognize their experience in the listener's experience and feel like, oh, yeah, maybe that could apply to me or or maybe know someone who the asexual label might seem to fit. And then I think investigating that is, is important. There was also a reference to the AVEN forums, and AVEN stands for Asexuality, Visibility, and Education Network. And we'll include a link to that website in the show notes as well, because there's a lot of misinformation and misrepresentation around asexual identity. And so I th- thank you so, so much to the listener for writing in about this and and for being willing to really challenge the things that you've been told that are inaccurate and damaging. And I'm so glad that you feel affirmed by your partner and you said you're in a happy marriage. And, you know, you mentioned being more solid in your sense of asexuality, but perhaps questioning the labels of cis and trans and not really feeling completely like one fits. But And you probably already know this because it sounds like you're a seeker of information um, and have done a lot of research. But I think in case it would help you to hear it, or if there's anyone listening to this who it might help to hear, I just want to point out that 
although cis and trans tend to be the dominant ways that people describe or understand their gender, or non-binary might be, you know, a, a way that people are coming to understand gender now. There are so many variations of identification and expression, and they go far, far beyond anything that we've covered in this podcast. And so I think it's really important to just keep exploring until people find what's right for them and maybe no label is is right for some people and and that's perfectly okay too you know one of the people i interviewed for this podcast prefers not to give pronouns at all because this person told me that no pronoun completely fits their sense of self and so yeah we'll put a link to both the article and the organization in the show notes i'm so grateful that the listener wrote in and i think it's just a powerful reminder that there are a lot of things to explore about our own identity and the identities of those around us. And it's really important to let people have their experience and not project onto that and and for mental health professionals as well to really be safe spaces for people to share. Completely. Yeah. Thank you for that. Anna-Marie, I also, I got another message that pertains to the last Q&A that I want to read. And I want to thank our listener CJ for taking the time to listen to our last Q&A episode, but then also taking the time to email in about it. And so, yeah, I'll just read this email. So CJ wrote, in the last episode of the podcast, it was stated that when a person states their pronouns, they're stating their gender identity and that using he or she instead of they for a non-binary person is misgendering. And then CJ continues to write, I just wanted to bring to your attention that that is not true all the time. And especially for non-binary folks like me, pronouns do not equal gender identity. In my case, I was assigned female at birth and my pronouns are she, they. I don't mind she, her pronouns since they don't cause me any distress or dysphoria. But someone referring to me as a lady, woman, or feminine would be dysphoric for me. I do not connect the pronoun she with any qualities about myself, and she doesn't feel wrong for me. However, my brain and identity has never agreed with the idea that I am a woman, feminine, or a lady. I am non-binary because I see myself outside of the rigid gender binary society imposes, or sometimes I see myself without a gender at all. I am sirred or mammed all the time out in public, and my experiences tell me that I think, feel, and present very differently than many cis people. Some non-binary people are okay with the pronouns that have been used for them for most of their lives. Some are not and do use they, them only. Also, in the podcast, it seemed to be implied that in groups of people, it was good to ask for names and pronouns. I would strongly advise people to make sharing pronouns optional. If you force people to share their pronouns when they are not out, this can put someone in a really awkward and uncomfortable position. They can either lie about their pronouns and be misgendered constantly, or they can be forced to come out when they might not be ready and don't know the intent or people in the group. I really appreciate you tackling these topics, providing resources, and being willing to try and grow. Please let me know if you have any questions about what I said. Thanks, CJ. So I just want to say thank you so much, CJ, for this message, for the clarification, for your generosity. I'm really, really grateful that you took the time to write in. And I think it can be a challenge sometimes to explain in comprehensive ways any issue. But I want to just say that it has never 
my intention to be overly reductionistic or to get things wrong. And so thank you so much for your email. It's a testament not only to your generosity um, in being willing to correct me, but also a testament to how important it is not to think I have all the answers because I don't. (laughs) I don't think any of us do. So, you know, I'm sharing your words because I think it's important. And to anyone else listening, I really want to emphasize that it's essential to personalize all issues of identity and not try to generalize, which I think can be difficult, right? Like in a podcast scenario, but it's really, really essential in our own everyday lives. Um, As CJ points out, for one person being called a certain pronoun might feel like a wound. And for someone else, it, it might not, or it might even feel affirming. And uh, But being referred to by a certain gendered word would be really harmful. And so I think, yeah, we want to get to know people and create real and meaningful relationships um, and get to know what is supportive and affirming for them. And I think the only way to do that is to create meaningful and empathetic relationships and to be humble enough to admit when we're wrong. And and I'm really sorry that my explanation wasn't comprehensive enough. And CJ, I'm so grateful that you clarified. And also, as CJ pointed out, sharing pronouns should absolutely be optional. I know that was in one of the article resources that I shared, but hopefully, yeah, if, if it wasn't clear, please, 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 please don't ever pressure anyone to share their pronouns. I think it's important if someone is an ally, sharing pronouns can be an act of allyship. But what we choose to do personally should never be superimposed on us by anyone else. And I think, you know, CJ's email is a really essential reminder that people are best equipped to speak to their own individual experiences. And I'm so glad that CJ was willing to write in about CJ's experiences. And, you know, we all have room for growth. And certainly I want to be growing and um, and part of that is making mistakes. And so I'm so grateful for the clarification and the compassion and the gentle and kind correction. So thank you again, CJ. I'm really, really grateful. Sarah-Lise, thank you for that explanation and answering CJ's question and concerns. And just to let you know, I took a step towards allyship and I added my pronouns to my email signature. So thank you for you know making that suggestion too. We have another question and this one comes from another listener named Taylor and they write, Dear Darylise, I have so many questions after listening to your most recent episode and would love it if you could answer one or more of them. How can your family most help in your recovery? How can things change when body attention and thinness is so pervasive in popular media? And do you think that fat phobia is rooted in anti-blackness? Thank you, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Thank you so much for your questions. I love them all, and I'll do my best to answer them all, at least briefly. So you asked, how can a person's family help them most in recovery? And everyone is so different in terms of what they need. And also, you know, family dynamics are so different. So for example, an adolescent living at home is going to have different needs in terms of family support than, let's say, like a single adult. And a parent with an eating disorder might have different needs from their spouse than they have from their children. And children might have different needs from their parents than they might have from their siblings. So it's all, it's really, really complex. 
And so I don't want to give like a blanket answer that leaves anyone out or leaves anything out. But a few things that I think are just universally helpful are to educate yourself if you're a support person of a person with an eating disorder, like educate yourself about that eating disorder in a general way. So just the more information you can glean, the more insights, the more research that you can do, like that's going to help you and equip you to support that person. But then beyond that general education, there's the specific education about the person in your life, your loved one, the one that you really want to be there for. And so I think just something that is really an important part of the recovery process is autonomy. And, you know, and I think eating disorders, as we pointed out in the episode, have a lot to do with control and trauma and a whole host of intersecting factors, you know, biology and family dynamics and learned behaviors. And so there's just a lot at play. In general, it tends to be helpful not to try to force a person to recover. This becomes very complicated, right? In the case of adolescents, I don't think that that can be true. Like sometimes parents actually need to get treatment for their adolescent children, even if the children don't want it. And with adults whose health is severely compromised as a result of their eating disorder, or whose mental facilities might be compromised, it might support might look like really forcing that person to get help. Um, but even in those cases, ideally, we want to support people in getting into treatment and getting the resources that they need, and then really trusting the treatment professionals and providers. Because I think sometimes like family members or loved ones try to take on that role of fixing the person and that can be exhausting for the support person and also can really put a lot of stress on the relationship and lead to a lot of fighting and a lot of just conflict. And so I would say that those who aren't trained in eating disorder therapy or, or who aren't eating disorder professionals are probably best at being support people, but not as in that role of like treatment professionals or like quote unquote fixers. So no matter how well-meaning support people are, they're generally just not equipped to be everything to their loved one, but they can support that person in enabling recovery and kind of like combating the disease. And so I think something that that you can do if you're a support person to a loved one with an eating disorder is you can create an environment for safe and honest sharing. So invite that person to share with you what's really going on um, and do your best to listen in a non-judgmental way and to um, and to really love that person, you know, where they are while also encouraging them to practice self-love and to implement the tools and the resources that they're learning in therapy or in treatment. I think something else that's important, and I I remember hearing this a lot when I would go to family support groups uh, for people with eating disorders, is practice your own self-care, right? And your own emotional wellness practices because it's essential to like model that, you know? And I think it's essential for support people not to be completely and totally exhausted and drained (laughs) in their efforts to be caregivers. And then, you know, beyond that, ask the person what they need and be really open to them and know as well that you didn't create the problem and you don't have to fix it. But also the person isn't broken and and the eating disorder is not all that they are either, right? So like you want to love that person, support their recovery, but have a relationship with them that's bigger than just focusing on their problem. People with eating disorders, I think our lives get smaller and smaller and smaller and we just can get 
get to a place where all we're focused on are our routines and our rituals around food and exercise and all those things. And I think it's really essential to have people in our lives who see us as more than just the sick identity and really see the potential in us and love us exactly where we are, but also know that there's more to life than than the sickness and the disease. So I hope that answers some of the question, (laughs) Taylor. Oh, these are such good points, valid points, Daryl And I would think that it could be very hard for loved ones not to just focus on the problem. Yeah. I mean, and it's really tempting to do that, Anna-Marie, but it's people with eating disorders can feel like so unloved sometimes and so invisible and so unknown. And so, you know, I think if the only thing that a person is recognized for is their identity as the sick person, like it can make it harder to let go of the eating disorder because it can feel like, okay, well, I'm getting attention even if it's negative attention. I can see that. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of different compounding factors. So it's not true in every case. And I certainly don't speak for all people with eating disorders, but I think, you know, whatever our relationships, it's always a good idea to focus on a wide range of elements to a person's identity and experience and to make it safe to share about anything and everything. Like, I think those are the most valuable relationships where we can be, we can be us. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing your experiences and your heart. Taylor's next question about how can things change when body attention and thinness is so pervasive in popular media, I think that's a really complex question. So in Brian Pollack's interview, he spoke about how freeing and beautiful it can be to step outside the cultural constructs that oppress us. And, you know, I think to some extent we can do that, right? Like we can set our social media filters and our email filters to weed out diet-centered information. We can refuse to weigh ourselves or to subscribe to fad diets or to verbally shame ourselves for what we choose to eat. But diet culture is so ubiquitous. And I know we talked a little bit about this earlier. And the media's emphasis on certain bodies as these standards for beauty and thin privilege are just all these things are so rampant. And so I think the question about how can things change is multi-pronged. You know, personal change is a decision that we can make and then we can regularly reinforce by deconditioning ourselves and by working against the brainwashing of diet culture. But then there's the change in our families and our social spheres. And um, and all of that requires, I think, more of an effort and boundary setting. And then there's the ongoing work that is challenging society. And that requires activism and accompliship. And, you know, diet culture and the media, well, diet culture is a multi-billion dollar industry that quite literally capitalizes on making people feel inadequate and reinforcing the myth that thinness and youth are to be pursued at any cost, um, or that those things equal happiness, right? And so I think social change is a lot harder than individual change. And I'm just personally not as optimistic about our ability to really change the way that society presents bodies. But I know that the more people we get to do this work, like this inner work and to release the dogma of diet culture and live that example, the better off those people will be. And then by extension, the better off our society. 
I mean, I think if anyone listening to this is moved to take massive social action, that would be great. But I think at base, hopefully we can take personal action to uh, liberate ourselves from from oppression. And, you know, one thing, though, that I think is really essential to stress when it comes to body liberation and to the negative ramifications of, of diet culture is that this is an area that impacts people of all identities. That is so true. It does impact people of all identities. And Taylor's last question is an interesting one. They wrote, do you think that fat phobia is rooted in anti-Blackness? Oh, what a great question. So if anyone who's listening has read the work of Sabrina Strings, the author of Fearing the Black Body, they'll know that Sabrina argues that yes, fat phobia is rooted in racism and specifically in anti-blackness. And Sabrina's argument is very compelling. And, you know, if we look at the original body positivity movement, body positivity, when it was first began as a movement, it was very much an act of powerful Black female activists really looking at the ways in which body positivity could directly combat uh, the anti-Blackness that was afflicting and oppressing Black bodies, especially Black female bodies. But now, as we mentioned, body positivity has been co-opted by mainstream white society and also co-opted by diet culture. So I think in answer to Taylor's question, there's a ton of validity to the assertion that fat phobia has its roots, or at least some of its roots, in anti-Blackness. That said, I just wouldn't want to claim, and I think it can be overly reductionist to claim that that's the only root of fat phobia. The American nation has a long history of puritanism and of suppression of appetites and forcing people to conform to certain standards. And also we live in a world where there's food scarcity. And at the same time, we have a culture of instant gratification. And many, many people have gone through trauma alienation, abuse, oppression. There's an ancestral legacy, right, of I think a lot of people who have experienced trauma, whether that be the racism that dates back to slavery or perhaps discrimination um, that people have faced as immigrants to America. There's just a whole lot of food scarcity that has created generational trauma that continues to endure. And so it's really complicated. But what I can say for sure is that the Black fat body is more at risk and less privileged. And also because of the historical roots of racism and slavery, Black bodies have suffered more ancestral trauma and food scarcity and less access to certain resources. And so all of that is true. And at the same time, you know, when it comes to body standards, white bodies are also commodified in certain ways. And then bodies anywhere within the spectrum of race can be commodified and objectified. So I think, you know, the answer is so much more complex than a yes or no, or maybe better said, my answer is yes, absolutely, that there is a great deal of correlation between fat phobia and anti-Blackness, but there are also other things operating 
as well. So I don't want to oversimplify, but we will put two links. There's a really great article about Sabrina String's work, and we'll put a link to that um, in the show notes. And then there's also an NPR piece as well. And so we'll, we'll put links to both of those things in the show notes and kind of let listeners learn more independently about that. All right, Daralise, let's move on to another listener question from Alexa. Hi, Daralise. So my name is Alexa Henderson, and I'm calling from the Philadelphia area. I've never struggled personally with an eating disorder, but um, I do have several friends who, who do struggle with eating disorders, and I'd love to know how to support them. So if you have any advice, I'd be really grateful. And also, thank you so much for your podcast. Alexa, thank you so much for that question. I think it says a lot that you have friends who have been open with you about having eating disorders. And, you know, there can be so much shame and secrecy around eating disorders and disordered eating and a lot of stigma. So the fact that your friends have disclosed to you is a sign that they trust you. And that in and of itself, I think, is a first step in knowing how to support them. So without making too many assumptions, I'd say that many of the suggestions that I gave about supporting a family member that in answer to Taylor's question, apply to the friendship relationship, but with some notable exceptions, right? So like friendship relationships often don't come with the same nuanced and complicated histories or genetic ties or inherited and conditioned norms as family relationships. So I think in some ways it can be easier to disentangle when a friend is going through a struggle and kind of just be with that person where they are in their journey. But the same things, the same kind of things about listening and learning about the disorder and then also listening to the person and learning about that person hold true. And every individual is different. So someone might want you to really support them in tangible ways, like checking in before or after meals or asking about their recovery or maybe even going with them to therapy. And someone else might really want to talk about anything but the eating disorder and just to know that you love them and believe in them. And I think there is many different responses to how do I support my loved one with an eating disorder as there are people with eating disorders. But just knowing that that person has autonomy in their recovery and that the best way to love them is in a way that they can receive and feel nourished by. So I would ask that person what makes them feel nourished and loved and fed within the friendship. And, you know, I think it's an important thing to note that most of us with eating disorders on some level feel like we're starving, right? Whether it's for love or control or safety or something. And I think relationships are central to feeling full. Even though eating disorders can be really alienating, uh, friendships are important. And so Alexa, your friends are really lucky to have you and please keep being there for them, even if you sense them slipping away into symptoms, because I think it's, it's just really important to feel loved. Oh, thank you for that answer. The next question was emailed from a listener who requested to remain anonymous. I'll read it. Hi, Darylise and Anna Marie. Great podcast. My question is, what role do you feel patriarchy has in encouraging women to develop body shame, insecurity, and eating disorders? And what role do you think feminism can play in the healing of these issues that plague mostly women, but also all genders? Can't wait to hear your answer. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, yes, uh, patriarchy. So in its strict definition, patriarchy is a system of society or government in which the father or eldest male is head of the family and descent is traced through the male line. 
So I know that the word patriarchy has become a sort of cultural shorthand for a male-dominated culture, but I think just looking at it in its literal definition as a system of governance where men rule and dominate the family, and then part of the role of a man was to make sure that their daughters were marriageable, I think we really do get a sense of how and why policing the bodies of women became sort of like part of the role of man or the role of father, right? We look back and there's a long history of men sort of dictating, right, the physical appearance of the women under their quote-unquote control and also virginity, right? Like, And there was like a real emphasis on making sure that women had their appetites under control. And I think that in answer to the listener's question, like we know that the more that people feel controlled and shamed and repressed and suppressed, the more this leads to things like eating disorders. So patriarchy absolutely was in externally enforced, but also it became internally reinforced and regulated. And so I think now, even though social norms have shifted and like fathers aren't necessarily in charge of marrying off their daughters anymore, we still do see these norms in some ways, like dads giving their daughters away at the altar and and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, in terms of feminism and how that can support and uplift body liberation, you know, there are a lot of different types of feminism and a lot of ways that feminism functions. And so last summer, we saw a lot of backlash against certain expressions of feminism and how those expressions are still policing bodies and and some of the racism, right, that underlies some of feminism in America. And so I guess I personally see body liberation and representation and diversity as a way forward. And I do think that intersectional feminism and feminism that's concerned with equity and love and inclusion and where people see their privilege and recognize the vulnerability of queer bodies and black and brown and indigenous bodies and trans and disabled bodies and on and on and on can be invaluable. But I don't want to oversimplify feminism or just say that like, yes, that is the way forward. But I think that in general, women's bodies have functioned as a projection screen for society to superimpose its own images onto the bodies of women. And oppression impacts so many bodies in different complicated ways. And I think the solution has to be equally broad and equally pervasive. Anna Marie had such a great quote that's on our Demystifying Diversity podcast website. And so she says, and this is quoted on the website, just as deep as the issues of systemic racism are, so should be the lessons to overcome them. And Anna Marie, I hope you don't mind me taking a bit of creative license with your words, but I just want to adapt that quote to address any issue of oppression. And in this case, I'd say just as deep as the issues of body shaming and diet culture are, so should be the lessons to overcome them. Oh, it's such a formulaic quote, so you can absolutely take creative license with it. (laughs) I mean, I love that answer, and I could not agree more. We all have so much unlearning to do because all of these things were constructed, right? And standards of beauty and body norms have shifted so much, even over the course of my lifetime. And that's very sad, but there's always hope that there can be a change, right? And, you know, I look to the models in the classical art of Botticelli or Rubens as body role models. And that's so liberating for me 
you know, I'm a little plumping around after, you know, I'm almost 50 and have had three kids and that's okay. You know, classical art shows us that once upon a time, fatness and softness was desired. You know, it meant that you were healthy and nourished. And ironically, what was then considered unhealthy and undesirable gauntness is now what many people desire. Right. And you know, like my hope is for a day when there are no norms, because I think dieting actually causes, physiologically can cause eating disorders. But I think just in general, living in a society where you're told your body isn't good enough, whatever your body type is, that creates and generates shame and feelings of inadequacy in people. And I think that people have these rich and and complex like types, whether it be body type or, or personality type or whatever, you know, and I think the more we can stop commodifying and objectifying bodies, the better off we'll be. And I know that it's an unreachable aspiration, but I, I just love if we could move towards that more. Yeah. Well, until then, I'm a Botticelli babe. (laughs) (laughs) Darylise, we have another question, and I think it's very brave and self-revealing, and I'm eager to hear your answer to it. Hi. I'm calling in first to say I love your podcast, and thank you for the work you're doing. My question is, I'm a mom of three girls, and I've struggled with body image and eating disorders first in overeating as a child to deal with a very stressful, chaotic, violent childhood. And then the pendulum is swinging the other way where I developed eating disorders, um, anorexia, and then bulimia. Again, these are ways of coping with things. And I'm seeing as I struggle to remain balanced, um, I see one daughter going the way of using food as an emotional crutch and starting to gain weight, and another daughter who's doing the opposite, restricting. And attention is being brought to them um, by peers and even other siblings. And I guess as a mom, I don't want to project my struggles onto them. I want to use what I know to help empower them. So my question would be, how do I do that? How do I find the balance? And what should the focus be? Because my concern might be one daughter's too thin, the other one's gaining too much weight. But if they love themselves as they are, when is it unhealthy? Again, thank you for your podcast and all you do. Bye. Anna Marie, you're so right. This question is incredibly brave. And thank you so much for asking it. Thank you to the listener. And thank you for sharing your experience and for wanting to do right by your daughters. A few things that I think it's important to say. I'm not a mental health provider trained in child rearing or anything like that. And I don't have kids of my own. So my feedback isn't going to be clinical and it's not medical advice, but I can share based on my experience and my research and the stories I've heard from other people in my many years in treatment and the many sort of friendships I've formed with people, mothers and daughters with eating disorders. And the first thing I want to say is that I'm really sorry for your struggles, your own personal struggles, both in childhood and now. And I'm not really clear from your message where you are in your eating disorder journey, but I think it's great to hear you speak about balance because I find that balance is just 
key in moving from the disease to greater ease and enjoyment in life and fulfillment in relationships. And so I will say that, you know, there's the old saying about putting your own oxygen mask on first. And so before you think about your daughters, I really want to encourage you to have support around your own eating disorder. And whether that be a therapist or a support group or a dietitian or anyone else you can talk to regularly and lean on, you know, I'd say that even if you're not currently symptomatic, it might be helpful to see someone even for a couple of sessions if that's affordable and possible, because chances are that if you're going to begin dealing with these issues with your daughters, a lot is going to come up for you. You know, maybe memories about your own behavior or guilt or shame, feeling like, did they learn this from me or did they inherit this? And really eating disorders are made up of a whole host of factors from genetic to cultural to traumas to habits. So I hope, I hope, I hope that you don't blame yourself at all and that you can really see your eating disorder history as a wonderful source of empathy and connection with your daughters and just know that you're the perfect parent to support two girls and moving beyond this. But at the same time, I think it is really essential to kind of have your own support to equip you to teach them by example, and also to teach them that they can get support too, and that it's a good thing and that it's a source of strength, because it's likely that your daughters look up to you. And I would say, you know, talk to them would be my advice. And I'm not sure how old they are from your message. But I talk to each of them separately and just tell them about, you know, maybe not in detail, because I, I Again, I'm not sure about their ages, but you know, you can tell them that you're getting your own help around food and eating and you wished you'd had it sooner and you'd like a more neutral relationship, a more balanced relationship around food. And then you can ask them how they feel about their relationship with food and if it's the relationship that they'd want. And if it's not, then ask how you can support them and let them know that you'd like to support them and that if they want to talk to someone other than you, you know, you're happy to help find them someone to talk to. You know, I think it's really important kind of not to project our own feelings about other people's food and eating onto them because I think that can be shaming and and chances are like no matter what a person's age like they know right like they know if if their relationship with food kind of makes them comfortable or uncomfortable or is leading to certain problems and and so I think ultimately if you're having conversations with your daughters know that you just want to make a beginning and to not be shaming and to open the door of conversation and to let them know that you're there to support them in feeding themselves what they need, both, you know, literally and metaphorically. You know, something else too that I think it's really important to mention is you said you have three daughters. Sometimes attention goes to the ones, the children who are most visibly in need of attention because their behaviors mandate it. But I can say that that can sometimes leave the child without any outward behavioral pain feeling ignored. And, you know, as I look back on it, I know that my little sister Tyla suffered a lot because of my patterns with food. And, you know, I think about the time when I was going through like my most intense bulimia and I was living in the house and, you know, she was as well. And I was in and out of inpatient hospitalization. And and I just, I think, you know, she probably could have used some support because I'm sure she felt invisible. And, and also I know that she felt like she had to be perfect and she had to be the good one and not make waves because she saw like how much my issues were a problem. And so I know that her being the sibling that kind of got the least amount of support because I was at least on the surface most in need of support 
caused her some issues over her lifetime. And I think that, you know, eating disorders sometimes are presented by those who work in the field as family systems issues. And so I think that even though, you know, as a parent, you're probably focusing on the two daughters who behaviorally seem most in need of of care and support, like I think it's essential to create space for all three of your daughters to talk about whether or not they feel nourished in life. And, you know, feeling nourished is about so much more than food. So, Thank you so much for the question and for sharing and good luck to you and to your daughters. And please let us know how it goes or if we can do anything, please send us a message on the website or or leave another voicemail. You know, I really, really care. And I know that Anna Marie cares too. Oh, absolutely. And this caller, this dear caller's experience is really important. And I'm sure there are a lot of other people struggling in the same way. Dear Elise, before we say goodbye, let's make sure to do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. During each Q&A episode, we select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed with questions. And this week, the name we picked is Beth Bernabeo. Yay! Beth is one of the subscribers to our newsletter, and we'll be contacting Beth to arrange to send out a free t-shirt and a thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. If you want to be eligible to win a t-shirt, call, email, or subscribe to our email list. Subscribing is great because you'll keep up to date on episodes and events. Yes, just go to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. It only takes a few seconds. Congratulations again, Beth. Yeah, congratulations, Beth. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Lacalle by Speak Easy, with permission from Blue Dot Studios. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, please pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by our very own Darylise Lyons. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Interracial Marriages, a celebration of the evolution from illegal to accepted. In the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.